morning. Why don't you stand with me as we sing? And oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. I am washed, I am washed, I am drenched in souls atoned by the blood of the Lamb. I'm not a slave to one. Well, tell me then how beautiful that cleansing blood. I am washed, I am washed, I am drenched in love. And oh, precious is the
Good morning. Go ahead and be seated. Welcome. Good to see you today. You're looking good. Temperature's getting close to right. Guess we're really glad you're with us today. Inside that worship guide is a little slip that says guest member response. We would love for you even as a guest to fill that out if you would. Just let us know who you are and all. You can drop it in the box at the door as you leave there today. That's where we give our offering each Sunday. So, uh, again, for all of us, that slip is available, even our church members. If you have a prayer request or anything you'd like to share with us, put it on that, drop it in that box. We're just glad you're here today. Let me share with you a couple of announcements. Financial peace. That sounds good, doesn't it? Well, you don't have to worry about finances. Well, financial peace is a course that's going to begin at the Adrian campus on Tuesday, March the 17th, it'll be a nine-week course, and it also is going to start here at the Garden City campus beginning on March 24. So uh, just imagine the impact that we could have on the community if we were all your money, but uh, just, just encourage you today, if this could be a benefit to you, take advantage of it. So March the 17th at the uh, Adrian campus. March the 24th, it'll be here at the Garden City campus. So when our church volunteers give uh, to 8 p.m. at the least, things like that. So to sign up to uh, drop you, if you don't have young, to help. So uh, you are so good to us for your faithfulness. Thank you today, God. To be the people in our lips as we sing. Our power is just, we surrender. Open our heart. Keep my body
defense which is true and he gives us the opportunity to come to him and to talk with him and lay all of our stuff that we're carrying around on him we need to do that this morning this hour we said we need him every hour we need him right now so I'm, in, I'm encouraging you this morning just to spend a couple minutes talking to your God talking to the one who is all powerful all knowing Spend some time with him right now.
Rejoice as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. When death was arrested, my
kids, it's time for you to go to Children's Church and the rest of us to greet one another. So when speaking to you last Sunday, little did I know that shortly after midnight, I would be headed to the hospital and soon would be proud grandpa of this little dude named Theo. We got him? There he is. There he is. Seven pounds, 14 ounces, Theodore Lane Fox. So a Theodore born on President's Day. I thought that was pretty cool. I thought that's pretty cool. And I'm telling you, he is, he is one pleasant little dude. He just is. Uh, as far as baby goes, in my experience, he, 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 he really doesn't cry that much, right? Which is, Yes, he doesn't cry that much, honestly, when he's hungry. That's about it. And my point is, how else is he supposed to let you know at this point, right? And even if he does cry, he's a baby, right? But eventually, Theo's going to learn. He's going to learn that even when he's hungry, he won't have to cry or grumble or complain, he can just ask. Because Theo has parents who love him more than he can even imagine. And their action toward him will reflect such great love. Wouldn't it be so amazing if the same thing could be said about the way you and I see God. That when I'm hungry, or I'm afraid, or I'm confused, or I'm hurt, I don't have to first complain or grumble because he loves you and I more than we can even imagine. 
and his actions toward us will always reflect such great love. Good morning. Everybody good? I'm good. Welcome, Garden City. want to say welcome to the Lewisburg crew. And this morning, welcome to Lee Summit. I hope that uh, you guys are doing great today. And then welcome to our, our online community. So grateful for those of you who join with us every uh, single Sunday. Thank you for taking the time. It's good to be together. Now, some people might look at this and they go, well, you're in different locations. And we are. But don't be mistaken, we are one in a mission. We're one in a mission. And this year we are on a journey together with a, a prayer that as we are on what we call the same page, we are reading the story of God together. And each day we're on the, the same page of that story. Our prayer is that God will make us one. Now, right now we're in a part of God's story where God's kids are on a road trip. And the only thing worse than whining kids are whining kids on a road trip. That's exactly right. The book of Numbers is where we find ourselves right now. Moses is the author, and he's recounting this trek. Now, it was supposed to be a trip of about 40 days. Now, that's a pretty significant trip in my book, but you just need to compare the fact that it was supposed to be about 40 days, and this trip is going to turn out to be far longer, as in 40 years. Now, what happened? What happened? I mean, is, is this a, hey, Mrs. Moses saying, will you just please ask for directions, right? What, 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 what is taking so long? Moses, don't you, haven't you heard about maps, man? Why are we taking 40 years to travel what we could have in 40 days? Well, what if I told you that it's tied to the fact that God's kids were acting as though they didn't know that when I'm hungry or I'm afraid or I'm confused or I'm hurt, I don't have to complain and grumble because he is a God who loves me more than I can even imagine, and his actions toward me will always reflect that great truth. Now, we've seen it in this story. The signs are there early. The signs are there early. I'm saying God's people have been in slavery in Egypt. God raises up Moses as the leader to draw them out, and they are barely out of town barely out of town, and they suddenly realize that they are being pursued by Pharaoh and his army of chariots, but they suddenly are stuck, staring at an impassable sea, and they're afraid. So from the very beginning of the story, this is what we saw in Exodus chapter 14. This is what they said. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? 
What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses, didn't we tell you, leave us alone? And, and this is the parts of the story where you just want to go, seriously? No, you didn't. That's not what you said. That's not what the, how the story is written. I, I mean, God tells us very plainly about the oppression that his kids were in, in, in slavery. He, he tells us, uh, describing the beatings. I mean, remember what Moses saw. But they're so afraid that they are remembering their past in Egypt better than it really was. A few chapters later, same tune, little different song, Exodus chapter 16. This is what they say this time. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. You want to go, are you kidding me? There was no fogo de chao in Egypt, right? They're not sitting around tables running the flag up going, hey, give, give me, bring more meat, bring more. They, really? That, that's what they described. They were slaves. But again, they're remembering their past better than it was because they are afraid of what's ahead. Do we ever do that? Like... Do I ever remember the past better than it really was? And when I do, is that a clue for me on really what's working at my heart, which is often something called fear that I'm facing? Maybe it's time to face the fear and call it out because we can sing our songs about being free, but as long as fear captures us, we're not free. I want you to think about something before we start filling in some blanks today. You will never, you will never move forward while you're stuck looking back toward a past that never was. And that's a picture that I see in so many people's lives. They are afraid to move forward, so they're constantly looking back. But what they're looking back is, it's actually not even the reality of how it was. So, in Exodus, we start to pick up on the pattern. This is how God's kids are responding to him when they're afraid. Now, what if I tell you, in Numbers, there's at least seven times, seven times in the book of Numbers that we continue to see this pattern of them griping and complaining and rebelling. You, you can look them up. Numbers chapter 11, they're complaining about the hardships. Then they complain about the food. Numbers chapter 12, you've even got Moses' family who is complaining about his relationship with God, as in it's good, right? But they're griping about it. In chapter 13 and 14, that's when they're complaining about, they're rebelling about the giants in the land. And that's when God says, this trip's about to get really long, right? Right? 
In Numbers chapter 16, the leaders are complaining about leadership. In Numbers chapter 20, they're back to complaining about the water, and that's when Moses doesn't handle it really well, and he ends up striking the rock instead of speaking to it. And then we get to Numbers chapter 21. And it's still the same refrain. This is what it says in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5. They spoke against Moses and against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? Why did you bring us here to die in the desert? Now, I think that's not really a question, it's really a statement. It's less of about. Why have you rescued us? It's more about saying, Moses, you did this to us. You brought us here. And then this is what it says in the last part of that verse. They spoke, or there is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Let's read that again. There is no bread. There is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Wait, I thought there was no food. You start to read their complaints, and you just begin to realize there's something more going on here. Yeah, there's something behind the grumbling. What's behind the grumbling, the real issue, is God we don't trust you. You have an outline today. I encourage you to take a few notes. There's a few blanks that we leave. We don't trust you. Now, I got a quick note. This is free for all the leaders in the house, all right? For all of those who lead, don't be surprised when there are moments that you feel like the target of the complaining. That's where Moses finds himself. Moses finds himself repetitively the target of the complaining. Moses, why did you bring us here? Moses, why are you going to let us die here? But what's the real issue? The real issue is they don't trust God. I'm saying just be okay with the fact if you're a leader, there are going to be moments they put the target on you. You got to realize there's a deeper heart issue usually at play. They are like little children who, when they're hungry, they don't know how loved they are. And because they don't know how loved they really are, then they begin to, to draw some assumptions. Clearly, it's because God doesn't love us. Clearly, it's because God is not for our good. That's why we're here in the desert. That's why we're going through what we're, God doesn't love us. Come on. Have you ever found yourself in such a space where whatever's happening in your life at the moment, you, you start to raise those questions of God, God, why would you bring me to this place? At best, you're polite to say, God, would you, why would you allow this to happen? Well, not only are they asking those questions, but they just begin to assume God wants them dead, because that's what they said. Why would you bring us here to let us die? Here's what I want you to see. The venom 
of complaint begins to spill out of their heart, up and out of their mouths. And what that venom is speaking as it flows is, God, we don't trust you. What happens next? Check out verse 6. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes. He sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. I'm convinced it is as if to poetically match their complaints. Snakes enter the camp. And now, the deadly venom that is pumping through their hearts, this venom of complaint, this venom of distrust, that the, the, the venom that is pumping in their hearts is now matched by a deadly venom that is coursing through their veins. Here's what I want to make sure you understand. Complaining like venom is destructive. Complaining like venom is destructive, and the reason it's destructive is because of what's behind it. Now, there's a word play that's happening in this story. There's a, there's a, there's a word play in the Hebrew language. When most English translations translate these snakes, it calls them venomous snakes. The word, I think, can very specifically be fiery. That's the word. Fiery snakes. That, that's the most literal translation that I would know to give you. And what we know is that there was a kind of snake in this region in, in which we find them in this story, and they were called fiery serpents. That's what they were called. Now, it's obviously not because they were actually on fire, but the reason they were called fiery serpents is because their bite set you on fire. If you were bitten, you began with this fiery, hot, inflamed swelling. It eventually led to a raging fever, an insatiable thirst, an all-consuming, unquenchable fire from the inside out, and then finally death. And I think we have a way of at times reading stories like this and we go, honestly, this feels like an overreaction to me. I mean, they're just, they're just complaining. They're just spitting out this venom of complaining and God's going to send venomous snakes into the camp. But, but I think what God is up to here, there is something so very powerful, something so very symbolic at play here. This particular snake's venom, I mean, what we know we're dealing with here, it leads to an insatiable, unquenchable thirst. And I think the, the physical snakes in this story really are an illustration of a spiritual condition that God is dealing with in his people. And we've seen it nine times this morning. Nine times it's recorded. And it echoes all the way back 
to a garden. It goes all the way back to the very first days that we began to read this story in Genesis chapter 3, where onto the scene appears a what? A serpent. And this serpent whispers lies. And what are his lies about? He's calling into question the heart and the character of God. A serpent that says, did God really say that? A serpent that says, don't you see God's holding out on you? A serpent that says, oh, God just doesn't want you to know. He whispers lies, calling into question the heart and the character of God toward his kids. And so what we're seeing in God's kids as they trek through the wilderness, it is our human condition, isn't it? I mean, when we find ourselves stuck, when we find ourselves lost, when we find ourselves confused or suffering or hurting, what always makes it worse is the questions of God's heart toward us. What am I doing wrong and why does God hate me? What am I doing wrong? Why am I in this? Why am I hurting? Why am I struggling? Why am I confused? Why does God hate me? And the questions plague us and the reason they plague us deep down is we have become distrustful of God's heart toward us that will always be good. Now, come on, I'm not saying that life is always good in the sense of that it's always perfect. That's not, that's not what we're saying. That's not what the, sometimes the food is gross. Sometimes the leadership is unfair. Sometimes it's just not cool the way it seems like you are in a season of your life where you just seem like you are right up next to God and I'm sitting here looking for an answer that he hasn't given me yet and I'm wondering why it feels like distance. Sometimes there are just moments that we don't describe as good. And so what do we do in those moments? Well, we have a tendency that instead of Believing that God's heart toward me is always good, I believe the lie that the next thing will be enough. I believe the lie that the next thing will be enough. See, underlying this, this insatiable, right, un unquenchable, it's like I'm mad at God because he won't give me what I want. Because what I really think is that he'll give me what I want, that'll be enough. That'll be enough. If I could just have this relationship, right? So if I could, if I could just get the girl, or if I could just, all right, get this particular job, or if I, it, when I graduate, then it'll be good. But I'm telling you, it's never enough. The result, the result is an unquenchable thirst. 
The result is an unquenchable thirst. That's why throughout this story there are moments that they complain about the food and God gives them food and then later what do they complain about? The food. If you just give me the food then it'll be enough but it's never enough. It's never enough. Watch what happens next, verse 7. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. I mean, you got to, I know it's really kind of one of those places where you don't want to let your mind go, but to try to imagine what the camp was like as those venomous stakes began to move throughout it. And it doesn't take too long before somebody realizes, hey, we messed up. We messed up. And they recognize their sinfulness. They recognize their grumbling against God and against Moses and and I, I just find it interesting they ask Moses to pray for them, don't you? I mean, it, it's like the dude that we're trying to attack, the dude that we're trying to, 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 right? It's like, so will you pray for us? And last week, we learned something about Moses. He was the most humble man. And it tells you something about this man's heart. That after repetitively they come after him, repetitively they attack him, repetitively they complain. And what does Moses do? He prays for them. He prays for them. Please, Moses, pray that God will take it away. But watch what God does in verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, so form a snake, and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So I want you to get a contrast here. The people are asking, God, please do what? Take it away. God, please take it away. And God says, actually, I want you to look at it. I want you to look at it. I want you to stare at this. Now, I think there's something that we can relate to going on here. It's kind of like it's kind of like any wound that you might have. If you just try to cover up the wound, we get it. Most of the time, it doesn't solve the problem. But when you bring that wound into the light, when you begin to examine it and diagnose it and begin to cut away at the layers of disease, that's when the wound heals. And it's as though there's imagery here that God's like, nope, we're, we're going to expose what's really going on here. The insatiable desire, this unquenchable spirit, we're, we're going to hold it up for everybody to be able to see so that by seeing it, any one bitten can be healed. Look here, and any one bitten can be healed. I think one of the most remarkable 
facts about this story is that there's a time when Jesus remembers and recounts this story. Do you know that? There's a time in the New Testament when Jesus makes reference to this story. It was in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Now, some of you know the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus because from it, we, we have the most famous Bible verse, right, in the whole world, for God so loved. That, that, that's, that is said from this conversation between Jesus and Nick. Now, Nick is a Pharisee. All right? He, he is a, a teacher of the law, if you will, which means in order to be a Pharisee, Nicodemus had to be a man whose record, if you will, appeared to be one of holiness. It appeared to be one of righteousness. I, I tell, I would say to people, typically the Pharisees walked out life in such a way that there was such a perception of holiness, such a perception of righteousness, it would make a nun blush. They looked like they had their stuff together. And Jesus looks at Nick and he says, you got to start over. You got to start over because your record counts for nothing in terms of you being right with God. And as pure and as holy as you think you are, Nick. It still adds nothing to your chances of being made new. Nicodemus, what you need is what people have always needed. It's what the Israelites needed when they were in the wilderness. And here's what John chapter 3 records. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Here's the point. I want you to get this. Just as God provided a bronze serpent to be lifted up to heal the people of the venom in their veins, Jesus, if you get any blank today, make sure you get that one. Jesus would be lifted up to heal the world of the venom of sin in our hearts. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, here's what Jesus would go on to say in John chapter 12. He said, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. When Jesus said, I'll be lifted up, he's referring to his death because Jesus knew there was only one way that everyone was going to look to him. It was called a crucifixion. He knew this is where he was headed. This was going to be the way that the healing love of God would be displayed for everybody to clearly see. This would be the way that all who looked upon him and believed 
would be healed. This would be the only way through such a death that we could have eternal life. It's like, but why does, why does he use the imagery of a snake? Like, Jesus is called the Lamb of God, right? He's called the Lion of Judah. He's called the Prince of Peace. He's called the rock of our salvation. Think about all the names, all the imagery to which is attributed to Jesus. Why a snake here? Because pretty much any time a snake or a serpent is mentioned throughout the Bible, it's a negative thing. So, so why is the snake the image of Jesus being lifted up? And I'm convinced that maybe it's tied to what the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, here's what he says. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's he saying? Jesus became sin. He became the embodiment of it. In other words, he took on within himself the totality of our venom. That's the imagery. My complaining, my entitlement, my destruction, my sin-fueled desire and distrust of God, Jesus became that. It was as though what I did, he did. So that as we look to Christ on the cross, the one whom we have pierced, not only would we realize our sin, but we would also realize his efforts to save us. Get this, just as the bronze serpent was God's answer to silence the pattern of complaining and grumbling and rebellion in the book of Numbers, I'm telling you that Christ on the cross is the fulfillment of God's answer to once and for all settle the question of can I trust God? Does he love me? And it is a resounding answer to the question when God himself would become my sin so that I might be healed of it. So what do we do with that kind of news? <laughs> like, what? Do, okay, what do I do with that? Well, check out verse 9. Back in Numbers chapter 21, it says, So Moses made a bronze snake, and he put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. What do we do? Here's what you do. Here's where we start. You look so that you might live. You look so that you might live. You ever, you ever read this story and wonder, like, did anybody in that camp die because they didn't look? You know what I'm saying? I mean, was there anybody that didn't look? Like maybe because, what, was there anybody that's laying there having been bitten by the fiery serpent going, you know, I just don't know if this is going to work. 
I'm just not sure looking at the bronze serpent on the stake. Is gonna, I'm just not sure this is going to... Do we really think that anybody is laying there? Did anybody die out of pride because they just wouldn't look? And I'm saying, man, don't go there. Because if you're honest, we all know that we can sense within ourselves the presence of sin's venom coursing through our soul. Because we know the anger at times that we can, we can feel in our heart toward people. We know the resentment at times that we struggle with, the, the bitterness that stews within us at times, the complaints and the, the distrust in our soul. And the answer is simple. It is to turn your eyes upon Jesus. And when you see him on a cross, becoming the embodiment of all your sin so that you could truly sing free, free. Lift your eyes to Jesus and look. It's not magic words. It's not trying to make sure that you're better than somebody else. It's a heart that looks in trust to Jesus. And can I tell you, that's always been God's answer. I didn't put it on the screen for you today, but e even the prophet Isaiah, when we get to his story, you will hear the prophet declare, God says, turn to me. Look at me, God says, and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. For some of you today, you need to look so that you might live. But then, live so that others might look. Look so that you can live, but then live so that others might look. Because that's what it really means to live. When, when I get to spend my days helping others look to the Jesus that, that I was called to see. I mean, I wonder how many of those Israelites while looking at their snake-bitten friends, thought, mm, maybe it's better if I don't say anything. Maybe it's better if I don't say anything because I don't want to make it awkward, you know? I don't want to make it all. I mean, I know they're dying, but I, it might be awkward if I tell them to look at the snake on the pole and then they don't look at the snake on the pole. It's going to be this awkward thing between us from now on. Like, I don't think any of those conversations within their own head really happened. You can bet they began to spread the news throughout the camp. You got to look. 
because they want their family to look. They want everybody in the camp to look, everybody at home, everybody at school, everybody at work. You got to hear this news. You need to know this news. Just look. Look to Jesus and live. Man, if we could just see the same urgency. Come on. We are bumping up next to people every day of our lives when there is something so much more dangerous than snake venom running through their veins. There is a venom of sin and rebellion that runs through their soul, and it has separated them from God. But you and I know the news. Look to Jesus. When we grasp the seriousness, when we grasp what an honor to carry such news, we, we won't worry about words like awkward. Because in the scope of eternity, it won't be awkward. There was a, uh, a young man's true story, a young man who was in sort of a, what I'm going to call a spiritual search mode. What I mean by that is he was looking for God, but he really didn't understand things. And so his answer to that was, I'm just going to start visiting churches. He's on a search. And he tells his own story. He's trying to get to a particular church, and uh, he's walking because this is January of 1850, and a snowstorm ensues. The snowstorm was so huge that he couldn't actually get to where he wanted to go. And so instead of getting to the church he intended to go to, he, he kind of turned down this side alley and he, he slides into a little chapel. He said, when I walked inside the chapel, there were 12 people there. That was it. Because nobody else could get out because of the snowstorm, including the pastor. So 12 people, no minister. But he said they all looked at one poor guy. He said, I think he was a shoemaker. He had not prepared anything to preach that day. He wasn't a minister, but they looked at him and said, you give the sermon today. So he said, he got up. He stepped into the pulpit, and he opened up God's word to Isaiah chapter 45, and he read these words, look unto me, and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He said, the man continued, my, my dear friends, this is a simple text indeed. It says we need to be saved. And we only need to look. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, it's just look. You needn't have gone to college to look, even a child can look. You needn't be worth a thousand pounds a year to look, anyone can look. But the text says, look unto me. 
And he says, I, now many of you are looking to yourselves. It is no use looking there. The text says, look unto me. And the man who's searching, he said, I, I saw that man standing there in the front of us. And he began to lift his hands and his arms toward the heavens. And he said, he began to cry. And he began to say, the Lord says, look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto to me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look unto me. And he said, after the man had gone on for, for like, you know, 10 minutes or so, it was about as long as he could, he gave them everything he had. He said, the man noticed me. He said, I was sitting under the gallery, and he said, there was only 12 people there. He knew I was new. And he said, he fixed his eye on me, and he said, young man, you look miserable. And you're going to be miserable in life and in death until you obey this text. Young man. Look to Jesus Christ. You have nothing to do but look and live. And the young man who was searching, he said, the blow struck home, and he said, I saw it at once. He said, honestly, I had been waiting for 50 things I was supposed to do to get to God. I was waiting for the 50 things that I was supposed to do to find God. And when I heard that God just said, look... He said the cloud was finally gone. And he said it was like when the bronze serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. He said, so it was with me. I looked and I looked and I looked until I almost have looked my eyes away. The young man in that story is one of the greatest, one of the most well-known preachers, communicators that our world has ever known. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And that was the day that God called him to look. And from that day forward, he became a man who lived his life so that others would look. Not at himself, but at Jesus. My point today is that there may be some of us, some of us who are gathered among all these campuses today, that today is your day to look and to live. I'm not going to single you out here today, I promise, because I don't have to. The God I know and love does such things. And there may be some of you who are hearing these words today that you know it's time in your life for you to look and to live. And today, you, you have heard, you have, you have been given such news. Maybe, maybe your issue is you, you've been trying to see what are the 50 things that I need to do to draw near to God. And he said, I want you to look. 
What does that mean, Jeff? It means that I look to Jesus and I'm admitting that I know. I know I have sinned. I know my rebellion. I know the venom. I can feel it that courses through my soul. And when I look to Jesus, I'm admitting that. But when I look to Jesus, I'm also believing that he took my venom upon himself so that when I trust in him, he will bring healing to my soul. And so I look to Jesus and I say, I trust you. I'm going to trust you. I want you to be my king. I want you to call the shots. I trust you. For some of you, it's time for you to look and to live. And then for those of us in this room who have, I pray that today is a stirring in your soul that you will live so that others will look. You will live so that others will look because the situation is worse than just snakes in the camp. This is life and death, and you carry words of life. Live so that they will look to Jesus. Speak of him so that they will look to Jesus. Because maybe you don't realize a lot of people have never heard that when I'm hungry or I'm afraid, or I'm confused, or I'm hurt. There is an unchanging truth. There is a God who loves you more than you can even imagine. And even when you can't see it, his actions toward you will always reflect such truth. live so that they will look in light of what we've heard from God's word today what do we need to ask of him for a moment I want to challenge you today that if you've never looked to Jesus that this would be your day. There's not magic words again. This is not about 50 things that you do. This is about a heart that looks to Jesus in trust. And I want to encourage you to call out to him this morning. Admit what you know about yourself, your sin. but to look to Jesus and trust, believing that what we've talked about today, he did that for you. You ask him for forgiveness. You ask him to take control. He will. He will. I don't want to, you, you can do that right where you're seated today. Seated today. Um, also, in just a few minutes, I, we're going we're gonna to sing a little bit before we wrap this up. There are going to be some people on, around the room on the side in the back. If you, if you want some help, if you would love somebody who would help you to maybe take that first step, I want to encourage you to run to them. God, I thank you. 
trusting that you have been at work in some people's lives um, far longer than we can even imagine today. People that you, God, orchestrated that they would be here on this day to hear this word that you originally spoke a long time ago, but you continue, God, to just speak into the hearts of people. And today, I have to believe that, God, there are some folks, it's time for them to look to you and live. So God, will you give them faith today? Give them courage to step to you, regardless of what we may feel like we don't understand. What, what we got today, God, we can understand. We can understand such amazing love. God, we can understand what we don't deserve and yet what you have graciously given us. God, we can understand that today because of you. God, I pray for your kids here today. God, I pray that you would call us to lives of urgency. God, we all know it. We, we get it. We, we know that if we were actually in a situation and uh, like in the story today, the snakes were biting and there was a solution. We get it. We know we would, we would, we would be bold in telling people where to turn. God, may you give us an urgency a hundred times greater to see the people really around us. And God, in the meantime, as we do that, maybe some folks in the house today, some folks who hear my voice today who are afraid, maybe in one way or another, hungry, confused, or hurt. God, today, will you give us eyes to see you love us more than we can imagine. And so what we don't understand, we're going to place it at the foot of a cross where we can understand that you will always act toward us in love. Today, we want to trust you. A God for whom nothing is too difficult, nothing too hard, nothing impossible. God, we sing that, we celebrate it now. Give us faith to trust. And it's in the name of Jesus that I ask it. Amen. I love you guys. Thank you for listening today. Let's stand and we're going to sing this truth together.
Today's bottom line is love God with everything you've got. And parents, be sure and ask your children, how can you show love to God? Thanks for being here today. Have a great week. <laughs>